Good morning and welcome to Explore, UPC's Learning Cafe. And even on this uh, delightfully rainy, somewhat windy, and even cool morning, we welcome you to our forum for applying Christian principles in a practical setting. And uh, it's good to see everyone here today. We've got several uh, special thoughts this morning, one being that um, Mark Bates has graced us with his presence. He, uh, No, no, it's not a substitute. Rather, we're bringing in the A-team here this morning. So Mark is actually going to be joining us and leading a topic that uh, at, at first thought might be a little disconcerting. As we ask the questions, why do bad things happen to good people? Probably a question that we ask uh, at least once a day. You know, why are, are innocent people caught up in war? Why do people lose their lives in car accidents, job loss, life-threatening diseases? Throughout each and every day, we're confronted with trials and tribulations, and yet at the very heart of the Christian faith is the hope, the quiet anticipation that there is an answer, and that answer is found in our risen Lord Jesus Christ. So today will be an, an interactive discussion on why do bad things happen to good people. I know Mark has a number of questions that uh, he will prompt the tables for discussion later in the morning, but, um, you know... Why don't we just show him a little bit of love? I don't know that he gets a lot of uh, applauses. Let's welcome him to the stage here this morning. Mark Bates. You do that now. Uh, we'll see how it goes at the end. Well, why don't I uh, pray for us as we uh, begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to get together and to, uh, to talk about some of the, the tough questions that that confront us with our faith, and we pray that our time together would be honoring to you most of all, that you would be glorified through it. We pray that it would be beneficial to us as well, and that we would find ourselves at least more equipped uh, and uh, going in the right direction of knowing how to interact with the people around us. And we pray, Father, that you'd use this to bless those with whom we come into contact. And so, Father, for these three purposes, your glory, our good, and the good of the world, we pray that you would come and meet with us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is good. I've always wanted to go to Explore, uh, so this is, this is great. I hear about all the, all the good things. Um, a couple of things we're going to do. One is this question, of uh, why do bad things happen to good people? But related to that, really, this is, that was the most asked question on your sheets uh, that Mike handed out. And one that was very closely related really is the same question. If God is good, why is there pain and suffering? They really are uh, similar questions, if not the same question. But before I deal with that one, I I couldn't resist. I looked over. Have you all seen the questions? Were they all read out loud? Uh, Well, a couple of questions came up, and I thought, I want to just spend uh, two seconds. uh, Well, not, you know me, not two seconds. A couple of just short time dealing with. Go on to the next slide here, Randy. And this is one of the questions that came up. Why do I need to go to church? If the purpose is to build our family life, then why do I need to spend two hours in church instead of with the family? I thought, no, that's a good question. Um, but if you look at that question, uh, any, anybody over here, the high school debate team people? No high school debate team people. Anybody ever on a high school debate team? Anybody remember the, the fallacy? There's a logic fallacy. Anybody ever take a logic class anywhere along the way? Okay, good. Okay, good. You're in trouble now. Okay, there's a logical fallacy in the question. In other words, there are such things as questions that are not necessarily, I mean, it's not 
They're not bad questions. They're just not necessarily good questions. Does anybody see a logical fallacy in this? In this, yes, Randy. Okay, explain that one. Okay, so that's one. Uh, so excluded saying it's yeah, called either or, and uh, and so if you really want to impress people, say there's a tertium quid answer to that one, right? So okay, that's one logical fallacy. There's another logical fallacy. Okay, good. That, and that's a logical fallacy called begging the question. When you hear someone called begging the question, begging the question is not bringing up the question. Begging the question means you have the conclusion already stated. So next slide kind of shows this, highlighted on the next slide. If the purpose, well, first of all, I would question whether or not the purpose of church is to build family life. That is a byproduct. That's not the purpose. In fact, the purpose of parenting is not to build family life. The purpose of your family is not to build family life. The purpose of your life is not to build family life. If you're living, in fact, I would say this question actually reveals a, a major problem both in the culture and even may, maybe even more within the church that we believe that the family is the ultimate goal and the family is not the ultimate goal. We, and as parents, we do for our children, we make idols of our children. And whenever you put anything other than God at the center of your life, that idol is going to crush you. It's not going to work. And here's the problem. Ultimately, the reason you live and the reason I live, the reason we exist, what, what, why are you here on the planet? What are you here for? If, you, if you've grown up Presbyterian all your life, you'd know the answer to this question. So, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you get RTS student. So, yeah, to glorify God is your purpose. That, that is why you are here. We are here for the glory of God. And in parenting, here's, here's why I think we've gotten so far off track, soapbox, uh, is I believe that we believe that our purpose is to raise healthy, happy children. That is not the purpose. Our purpose is to raise children who are committed to the kingdom of God. We are, here, we are here to glorify God, and we're here to raise children to glorify God. And so then, if I begin to look at it and say, okay, if my purpose in life is to live all of life to the glory of God, and my purpose then in parenting is to raise my children to live their whole life to the glory of God, then all of a sudden, you, yeah, it, it changes the question. So then, why do I need to spend two hours at church every week? And I'd say, well, one of the reasons is we want to equip our children and us as parents to live fully to the glory of God. We all are on a mission from God. You are on a mission from God. And it doesn't matter what your career is, you're on that mission to glorify God in all that you do. So, so I, I think one of the things we have to begin to see is maybe, I think we as a church, I think here's where we as a church have gone wrong. We've communicated the wrong purpose. And, uh, and we've, we've said that the purpose of church and everything is to help you have a, a, a more fulfilled life. And that is true. That's a byproduct. But, it's on, but you're glorifying God, and that's where you find your fulfillment and joy. So I just wanted to throw that one out. Here's another question that came up. We're going to throw it, just show it real quickly. Uh, someone had this question. It says, it seems that people don't ask questions anymore. Postmodern perspective does not assume right or wrong or, or uh, uh, says subjective. I believe they meant objective truth. Apologetics in a postmodern environment is very different. Um, has Mike been throwing around the term postmodern at all in here? Some, okay, so we don't need to go into that a lot. But, but what it's saying is we came out of the era of, uh, there's kind of the pre-modern era, you know, the dark ages, the modern era with science and enlightenment, 
And most of us who are 35 and older, um, and particularly 40 and older, even more so, grew up believing that science was going to answer you know, a lot of the life's questions, that every problem could be solved by science. These guys over here don't believe that. Uh, you go to UCF, they don't buy that anymore. They're not buying what we're selling from the Enlightenment. And so what they're saying, and I think this is something that's very true, this person in this question is, is um, I think the old idea of trying to prove you're right and they're wrong uh, certainly uh, does not seem to fly well with the younger generation. Uh, what, so how do you do apologetics with younger people? And I think one of the things is apologetics, what they want to see is Christianity real. Um, and so in other words, the old days of sitting down, so let me show you ten reasons why I believe the Bible is true, ten reasons why I believe Jesus rose again from the dead. I think there's a purpose for that. Um, but that is not what's going to convince most people. They want to see this Christianity real. And so the ultimate apologetic for the postmodern era is not linear logical arguments. The, the, the apologetic for the postmodern era is the church. Are we loving one another? Are we caring for one another? Are we loving the world? Because the world's not going to believe we care about their souls if we don't care about their bodies. Are we concerned about the environment? I mean, you know, all these things, all these issues that, again, if you're over 40, you, start, you said, what does the church have to do with that? And it's, you know, that's touchy-feely stuff. You know, you know, Jonathan sang last week, they'll know we're Christians by our T-shirts, right? You know? No, they're going to know we're Christians by our love. And that's what's going to provoke people. And so the ultimate apologetic today really is, do we care for one another? Which then changes the approach. In the 1970s and 80s, the way churches did evangelism, and many churches are still following this model, is you have evangelism over here, and you have worship over here, and you separate the two. And so you talk to non-Christians one way, and then you talk to Christians another way. Well, non-Christians today don't want that. They want to see, what, show me what Christianity is. And so they're much more open to coming in and saying, I don't want to come to a show where you show me what Christianity is all about. I want you to invite me in so I can experience what Christianity is all about. And so really one of the best places you can invite a non-Christian is, uh, is to a worship service, to your life group, to explore, because they want to see the real thing. Uh, they want to see how it really interacts. And so it's no longer this, this, this uh, division as much. Now, that, not everybody thinks that way. But, but that still is, I'd say that's the majority of where it's going, is uh, they want to see the reality of Christianity. Um, but, um, but still, people still have questions. And as they're drawn to Christianity, uh, they're going to ask questions. And people still have to think, people have made a big deal about postmodern is not linear, it's not logical. Uh, it, it, well, that doesn't work completely. Now, postmodern airplanes will not fly. Uh, you know, you still have to use science. To, you know, it still has to be logic, and people still have questions. And so, therefore, we still have to be prepared to answer their questions. It's just not the lead foot. It's after people are intrigued with the gospel and intrigued by the church and intrigued by the lives of Christians, then they say, okay, I believe this, I see the reality of this, but, but tell me again, and how in the world can you believe in a... In, you know, Jesus rose again from the dead. Now, help me out here. It's, you see the difference? Uh, so which way do you lead? So then, uh, a few verses you all probably looked up already. First uh, Peter three fifteen and 16. Anyone got a Bible want to read that for us? First Peter three fifteen and 16. Okay, so he's saying, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone. You know, set apart Christ as Lord. Honor him. Be prepared. Uh, keep a clear conscience. Give a reason for the hope that you have. I do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect being a, a key phrase there. Now, um, 
Mike, I know, talked a little bit about presuppositional apologetics. I don't know if you all remember this, but two verses that uh, we'd like to highlight on this are Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. How many of you believe there are contradictions in the Bible? I'm going to show you a contradiction in the Bible. Proverbs 26, verse 4 and 5. Okay. Somebody read that for us. Okay. Do you get that? Do not answer a fool according to his folly. That's verse 4. Verse 5 says... Answer a fool according to his folly. Contradiction, Bible's not true, right? Well, we can assume, now let's, let's just give, let's assume that the person collecting the Proverbs, putting them all together, uh, was not an idiot. Let's just get, have that assumption. Therefore, we have to assume that he, when he put verse 4 and verse 5 right next to each other, he knew what he was doing, and that it was not a direct contradiction. It's, 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 it's a wisdom principle. Uh, did Mike talk about the two types of argument? Argument from truth, argument from folly? Okay. First one talks about arguing from truth, and it's, you know, it says, uh, do not answer a fool according to his folly. In other words, don't go into their worldview and say, start with their assumptions. Uh, instead, uh, you, verse, then verse 5 says, instead, uh, you do an argument from folly, show them in their worldview how their worldview is wrong. Let me, so we're going to start with that one. Um, arguing from truth, what that means is, as you're talking to a non-Christian, uh, instead of saying, let me begin with your assumptions, you really you can't do that because you're not ever going to really be giving up your own assumptions. So instead, you'd say, be honest about your own assumptions, saying, well, okay, as we begin, say I'm talking to, a, to, a, to, to someone, and they're, they're not a Christian, Jason here, same Jason's not a Christian. As I talk to him, I'm going to start off by saying, okay, I believe the Bible, you don't. Let's just go ahead and acknowledge that. Let's be honest. And then as I talk to Jason, I'm going to go on with that discussion about, I believe the Bible, you don't. And then I, I'd probably say, um, explain why I believe what I believe from, from Scripture. Here's what the Bible says. And then I might also say, here's what I believe, uh, what I, why I believe what I believe. Uh, for example, is there a God? Well, here's what the Bible says about there's a God. But then I might also say, what, here's what the world says. Here's what external evidence in the world. We see creation and so forth. And then I might go on and say, and here's my own experience with this God. And so I talk about Scripture, uh, evidence from the world, and my own experience. Now, Jason may not buy all of that. In fact, he's probably not going to. And so then that would be the argument from truth. But then I might go into what's called an argument from folly. And what an argument from folly is to say, okay, I'm going to try on your assumptions and see if they really work. And the goal in this, and this is, I think, in today's world is where we can spend a lot of our time discussing with our non-Christian friends. It's pushing them, because the fact is, a worldview that says there is no God will not work. It doesn't work. It, it, will not, it will not support reality. And so your goal is to continue to ask them questions, but the ultimate goal is you really want to make them depressed. You want to bring them to despair, because you want them to see what they believe they don't even believe. That the things they say they believe, they cannot live as if those things are true. And so we're going to try some examples of this, and I don't know if this is going to work or not. And if not, you'll say, thank God Mike is back this week. So um, here's how, how it's going to work. Um, first of all, whenever you're talking, if you're in a real conversation with a real unbeliever, it never goes according to the script. So if you're trying to have a little outline and you say, you know, you, can, you know, anybody, computer programmers here, you know, ever use flowcharts? Um, okay, I'm, I'm so old. I don't know. Do they use flowcharts anymore? 
Do they? I don't even know. As you know, if this, if they say yes, you go this way. If they say no, they go this way. And if they say yes, they go this way. If they say no, this way. And then you go in this loop. Uh, and uh, um, you can't write a good flow chart on this. It, it gets too complicated. At least you can't have it with you. But let's start off with our question. The question is, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, why, why is there evil in the world? Well, one of the first things I would do with that question is I would begin with the argument from folly, which is, okay, you're saying that proves there's not a God. In fact, I've given this quote before. David Hume, uh, the philosopher, stated it very well. He said, Were a stranger to drop suddenly into the world, I would show him as a specimen of its ills, a hospital full of diseases, a prison crowded with malefactors and debtors, a field strewn with carcasses, a fleet floundering in the ocean, a nation languishing under tyranny, famine, or pestilence, Honestly, I don't see how you can possibly square that with an ultimate purpose of love. And so he goes on to say, if God is good, and if, there, if there's evil, then God is either good or all-powerful, but he can't be both. If he's good and he's, all, if he's, good and he's all-powerful, then, then why is there evil? Uh, because if he could stop evil and he doesn't, then he's not good. But if he wants to stop evil and he can't, then he's not all-powerful. And so Hume says, therefore, he cannot be good and all-powerful. There cannot be God. Well, so, so that's the question that most commonly comes up. Now, there are four possible answers to that question. Here they are. Uh, well, argument, truth, argument, go, uh, next slide. Four possibilities. One is there is no God. Two, God is good but not powerful. Three, God is powerful but not good. Or four, God is good and powerful, which obviously is the Christian Response. So, start off with the first one: uh, that uh, there is no God. And uh, and so, one of the first things you might do with this is simply starting and asking them questions. Someone says, um, "Good proves there's not God." Okay, what's a good question you might ask back to them? That cannot. The fact that there's evil in the world proves there is no God. What's a question? In other words, best defense is a good offense. Okay, okay. So that that ultimately is the question. So so okay, so you are the unbeliever. I'm the believer. I'm going to ask you questions, and then you come back at me. Okay. And I hope this works. Is uh, the the question? So okay. Well, how do you know what's good and bad? How do you define what's evil? You're an unbeliever. Think. What's your unbelieving friend going to say? Okay, so your judgment. Is your judgment always right? <laughs> is everybody's judgment always right or just yours? <laughs> just your, Okay, so right then, if they, if they actually were to say that, then obviously you've already won the argument. Okay, at yeah, that, that, that point, argument's over, you can move on to the next point. Okay, what, what might they say? Say, say, say no. Okay, so society decides what's good and bad. And so what would be a good question to come back at them with that? Say, well, no, society said this is good and bad. Okay. Okay. So the question is, what about Nazi Germany? So the question would be, which society? Do all societies share the same values? No. And so, so how do you know if, um, for example, in Afghanistan, where the Taliban made women wear burqas, how many of you thought that was wrong, the way the Taliban treated women? Okay, just about everybody, but not Booper. Okay, uh, no, I'm just <laughs> no, almost everybody thought that was bad. Okay, well, how do we know they're wrong? 
by what standard do you say the Taliban is bad and, uh, and our standard of how women are to be treated is right? Because we're living... So America is always right. Yes. <laughs> okay, you've won the argument at that point already then, too, because they've gone to an illogical extreme. Uh, so, okay. Yes. Hmm? Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, in other words, you could, we could both be wrong. No, okay, that, that's very possible. <laughs> yeah, very, very possible. So, okay, how, so just dealing with the question of how do you know the Taliban's wrong, how, who, who are you to say that they're wrong? Uh, you, you know, that, seriously, that, that's a question. You're throwing it back at them saying, okay, you say there's a problem of evil. You can't even define evil. Uh, and... And then you say, so then you back off. Okay, you, 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 got it, you got your nick in with that. And you remember you're doing this with gentleness and love. Uh, but you're, you, you're going in, and what you're trying to show, though, is they can't live in their worldview. And so you back off again, then you might ask another question. And you say, okay, what type of evil are you talking about? And, and usually the idea of suffering. So is all suffering bad? So what would be good suffering? Helps you grow. Okay, so, 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 again, you're thinking as a non-Christian. So, so, yeah, so, okay, so thinking as a non-Christian, but a non-Christian might say different language. How might a non-Christian phrase that? Okay, benefited you. Like, uh, like you might give an example. Say, uh, you know, do you ever, um, like when you're a baby, you got a shot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then their suffering definitely was good, yeah. Uh-huh. Jerry? Okay, like Bodie Miller, oh, bad example. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so training, you're, you're putting yourself through, and you're, you're suffering, you're denying yourself, and you're saying, because there's something good that's going to come out of it. Okay, then the question is, well, how do you know that's really good? How do you know that good's worth what you put into it? By what standard? Why is winning a gold medal more valuable than eating a good cheesecake? I mean, I, I think to me that's a close one, you know. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, in fact, that other question. In fact, take that question. You can take that as a serious question. The uh, the Keith Robinson question of uh, why are all the good foods bad for you? You know, and and, uh, and things like that. Uh, well, then the question is, what? Well, how do you know it's bad? What do you mean by bad for you? How do you define good? What mean? What is a long life necessarily better than a short life? Uh, is um, you know, and so, so you, again, you're, you're making value judgments, but what you're beginning to see is they have, you have no position outside. If there's no God, you have no position to say this is better than that. In fact, our culture is very much into the fact you cannot say anything is better than anything, but which doesn't, again, work. You know, you, you really can't live that way because, because you're, people are making decisions all the time. And, and so uh, that affect other people. Uh, I was with a guy this week. He's a pastor in Salt Lake City, Utah. And uh, one of the big issues, obviously, in Utah is polygamy. Now, among the, the, the Latter-day Saints, the, the big Mormon church, they're anti-polygamy. Among the old-line Mormons, there are still, there, he said there are two counties down there that nobody goes to, down near the corner of the border of Arizona, that are, that are all polygamous. And so the, the, the response of the postmodern person to that is, Live and let live. If they want to be polygamist, let them be polygamist. That's their value. Who are we to say marriage should be one husband and one wife? 
That, that's, you're imposing your cultural values on someone else. Well, here's the problem. Well, think of the problem. What could be, what's the problem with polygamy? Heard somebody say no man can serve two masters, but that's not it. No, uh, um, <laughs> tell Trisha's not in here. Uh, <laughs> well, um, here's the problem. Here's the problem with saying I'm a polygamous family and I've got daughters. And what you do with that daughter is you take that daughter and she might be, as soon as she reaches puberty, you marry her off to this old man who wants another wife. It is, it is sexual slavery is what it is. It is slavery. It is not a lifestyle choice. People are living in bondage because of polygamy. And so you can say you have your values, but your values don't affect only you. And that's, again, something else you want to point out with the unbeliever. Yes, you're free to make your choices, but your choices affect a whole lot of other people. You're not the only one impacted by that. And so what right do you have to impose pain on others? Well, then, ultimately, I think what you find is, and I think this is where you can find in our culture, is you're really going to find uh, that it becomes fascist is that, that those who have power get to make the rules. And, uh, and, and so it's really all about will to power. And so I think that's, again, something you need to point out, saying the only way you decide right and wrong is who's in charge. And then, and then you can, again, that's easy to show how that goes bad. That goes south very, very quickly. Um, but, frankly, that's, that's where the culture, either if it hasn't already gone, it already is. In fact, they'd say all words are just means of power. Um, so, but then the, another question. So they're saying, okay, you're saying, uh, if there's God, why is there suffering in the world? Another question you might ask is, okay, um, you're not a Christian, say, um, you ask him, say, well, how do you believe the world came into being? Where did the world come from? Okay, Big Bang. What was before the Big Bang? Nothing. How do you believe the world is going to end? Big bang or big spread or, or something. Or do you believe human life will last forever? No. Okay. So does it really matter? Now, if I say there's a house fly and it's born today and it dies tomorrow and for an hour in that time it suffers, do we really care? I mean, does it matter? Well, if it's never remembered, uh, then okay. The other question is, if if that's true, if there is no God and there's no creator to the world, then the question is, is there purpose to anything? Why was the world created? Oh, one can't say that. That's not even that's a question. Won't work. Why does the world exist? There's not a reason. Why do you exist? Okay, uh, Jason, you're working very hard at your job. You're not a Christian. You work very hard. I assume all of us work with non-Christians who are very diligent, very caring, very loving, and um, and so the question is, why? Why do you work hard at your job? If you're not a Christian. Short answer would be, it didn't make money. Why do you want money? Okay, Lindsay? Uh-huh. Okay. So you want to be remembered by whom? By whom? Who's going to remember you? Okay, when the world's no longer here, who's going to remember you then? Okay, but, but, but I would say, first of all, how many of you remember, other than maybe like 10 people who lived, uh, say, 100 years ago? I mean, can you name more than, say, 20 people who lived 100 years ago? 
Okay, that's not going to work then. I mean, I think it's the thing you have to show. Is say you're not no. Let's face facts. You know, probably for most of us, five years after we're gone, there's only going to be about five people who remember us. <laughs> How depressing. <laughs> but if you're living for that, that's the point. If you're living for that, you're living for the wrong thing. George Whitfield is one of my heroes. George Whitfield was a great missionary, great evangelist, came and preached revival in the United States. And um, he was with the Wesleys, uh, part of the Methodist movement, although Whit- Whitfield had some theologically a little bit different um, than the Wesleys. Um, and Whitfield, he, his, his goal in life at the end was that the name of Whitfield would perish. He, he had more people coming out to hear him than John Wesley did. He had thousands and thousands and thousands of people, tens of thousands. He didn't care. You know, he wasn't living to be remembered. He had a higher goal. And my point is, if the world is not existing, no one is going to remember you. And therefore, you know, why should you care about suffering? Why should you care about purpose? So so if if a non-Christian goes through suffering, they do not believe in God, they do not believe that God exists, and let's say something terrible happens to them, and say uh, something happens to one of their kids, that's like everyone's greatest nightmare, right? Something happens to one of your kids. What comfort can there be? Well, you know, I know, you know, some, what, what can you say to them from their worldview that would comfort them? Do what now? Didn't, I mean, you know, I mean, hopefully you wouldn't say quite like that, but but it's, uh, there's, you find yourself saying, th- there is no answer. There is no reason for your suffering. If there is no God, let's, let's first of all, see, the problem of evil really is not a problem for non-Christians, if they think about it. Because there's no reason, if there is no purpose to the world, then there's no reason you should expect the world to work out right anyway. There's no reason you ex- should expect good to be good and bad to be bad. There's no reason why you should expect anything other than chaos. If it came from chaos, and it's ending in chaos, hmm? Well, in some sense, it shouldn't bother you. Because, because why would you, yeah. And then what are emotions? If there is no God, if you're, as a human being, you're just a, a whole bunch of cells collected, then that loving feeling you have, what is it? It's just chemical reaction. It's just hormones. And after, you know, and after a, a year or so, some of those chemical reactions usually die down. You know, and after seven years, they've done studies on people who have married seven years. That they really, you know, die down, and uh, and and so what you're saying is, and so you really you're, 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 you're that feeling you call love, you're just Pavlov's dog, you know, you're just you're just salivating, and when the bell rings, that's all you are. You're nothing more than an animal. That beautiful piece of music you just heard that stirred your soul, is uh, you're just I mean you're no different than you're, you're really you're Pavlov's dog. You're nothing more. There's no better explanation for for what you're. And so what you're saying then, if there is no God, there is no love, there is no beauty. I mean, you look at the sunset. You know, remember, uh, you know, just beautiful sunsets. What are you seeing in the sunset? Dust. You're seeing dirt. Wow, honey, come out and see the dirt in the sky today. You know. <laughs> now, if you believe in a God, you believe there's something to beauty. But if, but there is no God. So what you're again saying? They're saying, okay, how can you believe in God? A good God, and yet there's a problem in the world. Well, first thing you're doing is helping to see, well, you don't believe in God. Your worldview certainly doesn't answer any of these questions. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, no, and that's why they don't believe science is the answer. They believe in science. It's not that they think science is bunk. Uh, it's just that they don't believe it's going to provide the ultimate answers. You know, those who grew up after World War II, in World War II, I tell you, there's a, there's a difference to the World War II generation. They assumed that we could build this nation if we just had enough economy, enough money, if we could educate people well enough, we would do away with crime uh, and all these different factors. And, and, and the younger people growing up saying, yeah, like that worked. You know, science has caused more problems than it's, it's solved. Uh, you know, look at, uh, you know, and those of us who went through crawling under the desk during the Cold War, saying, yes, yeah, science is our friend. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work. Uh, and it shows up in the movies, by the way. Jurassic Park uh, is one that shows, uh, the, the, the worldview shows up in, um, as well as some others. Um, but again, if, if there's no God, you know, you shouldn't expect anything. So, um, and, and then if there's no God, your accomplishments don't mean anything. So what you're doing, again, is you keep asking questions, keep asking questions, keep asking questions. Uh, I think a lot of times you, someone asks you a question, you feel like you have to a- answer. But I don't understand why you can't flip it around. And I, I would spend, if I, in fact, I do you know, spend more time asking questions than I do answering questions because what you want to do is to see them saying, you know, you're standing, they think they have a solid foundation. They, the Non-Christians typically they begin the discussion assuming they're putting you on the defensive, that they've got science and reason and logic on their side, and they don't. They really don't. And, uh, and so what you want to do first is cause them to doubt their own foundation. Now, that does not mean they're going to embrace your foundation. But I can tell you this, unless you rock their world, they're not going to be interested in your world. And the most loving thing you can do, if you think someone's on a sinking ship, what you want to do is convince them it's a sinking ship, so they'll jump ship. Times I've had this. Now it doesn't. Now here's the other thing: as you engage in conversation with people, it's not going to always go the way you want, and you're going to get asked questions. You know, I was in this, this conversation very much like this a number of years ago, and uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, and all of a sudden somehow the conversation always just wanders. It just wanders, and so somehow we get started off at one point. We ended up talking about the, the resurrection, and the guy throws out there rather facetiously goes, "How do you know Jesus wasn't an alien?" And I said, come on now. And he goes, yeah, and how do you know the world wasn't created by aliens and Jesus did these miracles by, by alien power? I said, do you really believe Jesus is an alien? He goes, no, but he goes, but you've got to admit, you know, that makes a whole lot more sense than believing that God himself would actually come and die for a bunch of sinful people. I said, you know, you got me there. I mean, you know, I, you know, <laughs> you know you're right. As far as being rational, logical, thinking that the, the, the cross is logical and rational is, uh, is pretty mind-blowing. And... Uh, uh, and so I think, you know, that's the thing. It's, be willing to say, yeah, that it is pretty amazing stuff. Yes. Yeah, I think that, again, I would ask them then, I'd keep asking them those questions. Well, why then do you believe in beauty? So we just evolved this way over time, but then showing them that, 
it still doesn't mean anything. It's just it's something you're making up or we as a culture are making up. And so we decided this was going to be beautiful or we decided this was going to be good. It makes all good and evil arbitrary. Like um, any of y'all read uh, Cows, Pigs, whatever the book is, Wars and Witches, you know, Mr. Phillips? Okay, they're not. Uh, this guy says that all, uh, all morals come from evolutionary. It's a book that uh, Timber Creek High School kids had to read, some of them. And um, talks about how all morals come from economics. He's a Marxist. Uh, and uh, it's really, it's seriously, I'm not joking. He's, it's, the book's a Marxist book. Um, and uh, yeah, our high school kids are reading. And, and he talks about, says the reason, for example, Jews don't eat pigs is because it the economy wouldn't support it. And, uh, and uh, now it's, a, it's more sophisticated. Now, the way I do it, I, I throw it out there and it sounds really stupid. He, he can make it sound really, really smart. So, so don't, you know, I'm just doing it pretty crass. And so, but I think that's what you begin to say is that you say then, if that's true, then that means that moral code really is a meaningless code. And so I think your friends say, oh, I believe we just evolved this way because it works. And you say, well, then does that mean, for example, you know, I think it just society works to have people not killing each other. Well, that's true, it does. But then if it doesn't work for me, am I free to abandon that moral code? Uh, it's, you know, society functions better if people don't steal from each other. Well, I think that generally everyone would agree that's true, but then it, but it doesn't always work for me. I mean, sometimes stealing can work very well for me. I mean, I really think I could be a good thief. I think I could get away with it. I'm not going to try, <laughs> you know. But if I thought the only reason was because it's good for society, I'm not going to do it because I'm concerned more about my society than I am your society. So, right, yeah. And, and here's what Francis Schaeffer was a master at this. What you begin to you take them, you say, okay, let's take that and let's live with it for you. What Francis Schaeffer, a couple of things he would do one time, he said, you know, says, I don't believe in, in good or... In fact, this is another one of my professors one time. He was teaching a philosophy class, and the guy says, I don't believe in right and wrong and all those social constructs. Cafeteria, he sees the kid in line, he jumps in front of him. The kid gets all mad. He goes, hey, you said, you know. <laughs> you know. He says, you don't believe in this stuff. And so you begin to show them. Everybody, they don't believe in good and evil when it's them. But I tell you, everybody has a strong sense of justice when something goes wrong to them. And uh, I, that's what you go back to. You say, okay, you don't think it's right about cheating on your spouse, but tell you what, I've never met someone, no matter what worldview there is in, and, and had their spouse cheat on them who didn't get awfully ticked. And, um, and, uh, and so I think that's what you begin to show is you can't live there. It doesn't work. Um, and so, you know, you begin, to, you begin to show them how they're, you know, they, 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 society can't function that way. And they can't function that way. Um, in fact, there's a famous example. What was, oh, he was an existentialist writer, John Paul Sartre. At, um, he was a very famous existentialist, which is really where a lot of this comes from, and no right and wrong. And then he came out against uh, the Nazis. And all of a sudden, you know, all these things he'd written. You read him back in high school. You just don't remember. Um, but he, um, he, after he, when he came out against the Nazis, all of a sudden people said, wait a second. How does that fit with your existentialism? <clears throat> mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, one of the things you can do with that, she's so saying, how do you know? Someone brings up this argument. How do you know the Bible's true? I, I believe that the disciples just made the whole thing up uh, to make society better, or whatever rationale. Well, one of the simple things you can say is, how do you know that? Well, say again, they're stating they're stating a fact. That, that, uh, here's the fact they're, sta- they're stating: the Bible is a made-up book. Okay. Uh, you believe it? So, and they say, how do you know the Bible is written by the apostles? Okay. How do you know? How do you know the Bible's made up? 
What evidence? Give me one bit of evidence that is true. Ask him. Make him prove his point. Right. Well, I mean, the New Testament, I mean, there's, there's a lot of scholarship on Jesus today. So, there's, um, so getting people to universally agree, uh, I think people universally agree Jesus existed. But if you even watch the PBS specials, the ABC specials on who is Jesus, you'll see there's a really divergent of opinion in scholars on what evidence there is out there outside of the Bible. Um, now, again, I just want to go back to argument from truth, argument from folly. Again, I start with argument from folly, asking them, how do you, okay, you're stating a, a theory. Prove it. They can't. Because, I mean, simply because it's not true. And there it really is no evidence. They, they, there is no evidence at all. And then, so you start off with that. Then you go to the argument from truth. Uh, and the argument from truth, first of all, start off by saying, okay, I believe the Bible's true. I'm going to go ahead and admit that up front. And, uh, and, and ultimately, I believe it's true because, you know, because of the Bible's own testimony. Now, I know you're not going to accept that. So now let's go to some other evidence. Now, this evidence does not necessarily prove conclusively but it brings a whole lot of weight. And so you begin by saying, number one, the Bible's own testimony. It's internally consistent. Um, how we have documents of Scripture going back. We have you know, people before said, you know, John was written several hundred years after the events. Well, we have fragments of the Gospel of John that date back, you know, to the, the early hundreds. Uh, there's a little papyrus, P45, a little, little script of it. And... Uh, and so we know then it dates back to within one generation of John's death, at least. We have that much. So, so, so you begin to show that we have, you have far more evidence for your position than he does for his position. Then you begin to show the impact of the Bible, and that's what you're doing, talking about people willing to die for it. People typically don't die for a lie. You know, that usually doesn't happen. Um, the other is, is the impact of the Bible. How do you explain that the Christianity, within 400 years, took over the whole world? There are lots of other religions around. None of them did it. You know, so, yeah, you know, so you begin to explain those. You can bring in those evidences. Now, that's a question. You can get Mike to go into more detail on that one in the weeks to come. But, but I, I would do argument truth, argument for folly. Start off with folly. And that, because that's the easiest thing to do. All you have to do is ask them to prove their Okay, I, I, yes, very good. But not necessarily the God we're seeing. In Scripture, right, mm -hmm. right, and so very good, nice segue. Uh, so in fact, let's move on from there. Yeah, uh, evil, yeah, whatever. I don't know where we're on PowerPoint. Don't worry about it. Is um, <laughs> we'll never get there. Is uh, the the question then comes? People say, okay, I believe there is a God, but my God. Here's the way I'll be phrased: the God I believe in, my God, would never allow suffering like this to happen if he could stop it. Uh, and so then that becomes their question. Now, arguing from truth, arguing from folly. Start off with folly. How are you going to answer that? Okay. Well, okay, this person believes in God, so obviously they don't believe he is going to do that. And so either they believe in a, they wouldn't answer, he's a God that simply created the world, the intelligent designer, but nothing more, a deist, so to speak, uh, or they believe in a God who's good but not all-powerful. Now, now, the question is, say, my God would never allow this. Again, argument from folly, what's the, what are the questions you can ask them? I, I believe in God, but I don't believe in a God who would allow suffering. And, but, and who loves us? Yeah. But who allows it then? And they say, well, just bad things happen. Stuff happens, right? Well, maybe he can't. I mean, uh, Huckabee, the uh, governor of Arkansas after, after Clinton, there's a Christian governor, 
Uh, he didn't want God's name to be disparaged. You know how on, on uh, insurance policies it talks about disasters and it calls them acts of God. He says he doesn't like that. God would never bring a tornado to somebody's house. So he wanted to take that out of there because he's a Christian. And I say, you know, if God, uh, you, know, <laughs> and, you know, sometimes we don't need to help out God so much. <laughs> you know, sometimes in our attempt to defend God, we actually ruin him, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, so he's saying, you know, Rabbi Kushner, he's obviously not a Christian, but he's, he's Jewish. He says uh, that God, uh, sometimes God is, all, God is a gr- good God. He loves everyone, but even God can't stop all tra- tragedies from happening. That's why do bad things happen to good people. Bestseller for a long, long time. It still sells a whole lot of copies. People are buying that and finding it very, very comforting. I personally don't get a lot of comfort from it. Yeah, they're taking to Bruce Almighty. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's, it's, yeah. And C.S. Lewis makes part of that argument in saying that, that, uh, that the part of the reason for suffering in the world is, is, is for that. Um, yeah, and, I, and I, I like that to some degree, although to me I'm going, wow, it seems like I could have done it a little bit easier. Um, you know, it's a very costly uh, lesson. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, again, how do you know what's good, what's bad? Yeah, yeah, so, so that's the first question. Still, you still got to deal with that question. The second question is, okay, where do you get your idea of God? Uh, you know, I mean, you know, again, it's some of the most obvious questions are the most difficult questions. Okay, you say, I believe in an all-loving, all-powerful God. And, uh, and yet, I've got a world of evil. You say, that doesn't work. And I say, well, okay, you believe in an all-loving God who's not all-powerful. Where do you get that idea? Uh, who, who, how do you know God is like that? How do you know what God is like? Again, that's a question you ought to... Someone says, I believe God would never condemn, name whatever the thing is. Uh, and you say, well, how do you know? Well, a loving God would never say homosexuality is wrong. How do you know? Where do you get that idea of God? Well... Because, and say, well, because, because that would be mean. How do you know that's mean? Because I say it's mean. Okay, now we got the idea. Uh, the whole idea is that God is whatever you say he is. And that's ultimately where you're pushing them. Now, you, you keep asking questions. You keep pushing. But that's what you want to get them to see is you have made a God in your own image. And, and you decided that God, you know, it's amazing how God is always for the things you're for and he's always against the things you're against. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? You know, there's no one else on the planet who can say that about. And so you begin to show them on what basis. You say, so you're saying, okay, I realize you reject the Bible. But you're saying you come up with your image of God based on your own intuition. And then you go back and say, has your, again, ask a simple question. Has your intuition ever been wrong? And, of course, if they're somewhat honest, they have to say yes. Uh, and, then say, and, and then so then how do you know? Have you ever met God? Have you ever seen God? Have you ever talked to God? Has God ever talked to you? How do you know what God is like? And you push them to say they really don't know. They really don't know. They've made him up. And so then you say, say, okay, well, at least here's how I know what God is like. And I go to the Bible. Now, I say, you're saying your whole foundation for what God is like is your intuition, your experience, and so on. And you already said that's not trustworthy. And yet I'm just going to the Bible, and you're saying the Bible's not trustworthy. But at least I say it's... it's it's got thousands of years more history than you do. I mean, I say, you know, comparing the reliability, do I listen to somebody who's, you know, 30 years old or 50 years old or, so, you know, where am I going to put my authority under? I mean, which is more logical? Uh, and then the other, then you might go in and say, what does the Bible say about God? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there's the, 
Here's why you need to learn theology before the suffering happens, because once you're in the middle of the pain, the theology doesn't do you a bit of good. And, and, and what I mean by that is, is that the, a right, that answer is, is true. It's just not pastoral. And uh, it's just not, it doesn't sound very caring and compassionate. And, uh, and so what you want to do is if you understand the theology before the suffering comes, you're going to be far better equipped because after the suffering comes, logic really doesn't really matter anymore. And so uh, I would still say that that person is saying, I think you, you, you have to rest on two things. God is good. God is powerful. And uh, those two truths. Now, we are not always going to understand. You know, someone says, you know, then why did I lose my, my two-year-old? And I'm going to say, I have no idea. And you, all you, I think all you do is you put them in your arms and cry with them. I mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. 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 Yeah, and that's what, you know, Mike in his sermon quotes uh, Joseph this morning. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God didn't just allow it, by the way. God meant it for good. And uh, as part of God's ordained plan that Joseph's brothers sin against him and sell him into slavery. Um, and so, because you said, God, you meant it. God meant it. It's an intent. So um, I think one of the things you have to look at saying though, those answers, we have to say all those things are true and, and um, about who God is. Now, I'm out of time. I've got to run over to the other building. But I don't want to drop you, leave you completely hanging, just partially hanging. I got through about, oh, one-third of my notes. Um, and, um, but what I want to do is we've talked mostly about the argument from folly, but I uh, want to do a little bit of argument from truth. And so what these are are some discussion, actually just some verses for you to look up and uh, discuss around the table about, about why is there pain in the world. Now, again, um, in a, um, thank you, buddy. Uh, in a, again, there's a difference between how you answer this question in an abstract way and how you answer the question in the person in the middle of the pain. Uh, if you, again, in the middle of the pain, I don't, I don't know, you know, like I said, the person's two-year-old, I, you know, I, what do you say to that? I mean, you know, I don't think, I don't, in fact, if I'm the person, I just lost my two-year-old, I don't care what you say. And if you come up to me and you read me Romans 8, 28, and 29 stuff, I might hit you, uh, I, you know? I, I just because I really don't want to hear it. Now, I want to be reminded that I'm not alone because I want to be reminded that I have a father that cares for me um, and that he hasn't abandoned me. But if, but if you come up and try and tell me why it happened, I, I'm, I'm probably going to get pretty ticked. And, um, uh, and the other thing is don't ever presume to know why God's doing something. God knows why he's doing something. But I've heard people go up to and say, well, you know, a friend of mine's wife uh, had cancer and she had a double mastectomy and and uh, the, somebody came up to said, I think, you know, God's done this to you so that you'll know how to, to empathize with other women. She said, well, can you have done another way? I mean, you know, I mean, you know, saying, you know, I mean, uh, it's not what I want to hear. I mean, don't answer the question for God. Uh, he, he's got, I mean, like, like we know what he's doing. Now, he's doing something, but that doesn't mean you know. And so that's, I think it's all very important. I'm sorry if I caused more confusion than, than uh, answers, but uh, not really. I, if you learn anything, just put, ask them questions. Ask them why, why, why. Well, why do you believe this? Why do you believe that? Why do you believe God? Why do you believe the Bible's not true? Where do you get your view of the Bible? How do you know? How do you know? How do you know? How do you know? And uh, that'll get you there. Thanks.